show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go and welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Illyri. What are we serving today? Bitterness. <laughs> Just sheer bitterness, like yeah, rage, um, yeah. hostility. Bitter, bitter ex-girlfriend channeling <laughs> those vibes. <laughs> what, are you, what are you drinking to celebrate or to channel such um, bitterness? I've got a rum punch. Okay. Do you want to explain the uh, the bitter connection? Because that sounds sweet. Uh, yes. Um, it was only when I went to Barbados and had a proper rum punch that I realised that you're supposed to put bitters in them. A lot mm-hmm. of the time, if you order a rum punch in a cocktail bar in the UK or Europe, it's very, very sweet. It's just full of um, rum and fruit juices. Mm-hmm. But there's a very particular recipe that they use in the Caribbean, and it does always include in well in Barbados um, bitters. So you're so gonna to have the bitters. Talk about bitters, mm-hmm. plural. I'm going to yes. talk about bitter singular. You are bitter. And to celebrate that, I am drinking a bitter. I'm drinking a London Pride, actually. Oh, nice. My fullers. And I will tell mm. you a little bit about London Pride in a bit. But to, to kick off. Let me start with a little overview of what is bitter. Please do. The ale. Uh, So bitter is an English style of pale ale, which although its recipe origins actually go back to 17th century Burton-upon-Trent, which we have covered before in the Fire and Brimstone episode when we discussed the sulfurous smell of the Burton snatch. (laughs) Do you remember that? (laughs) How could I forget? <laughs> I nearly made you spit, didn't I? <laughs> you did. <laughs> I heard the gulp. I hope Mike picked that up. <laughs> um, so the, the recipe kind of comes from them. But as a term, bitter arises in the early 19th century to distinguish it from a pint of mild. So it varies in colour from gold to dark amber. And its strength is typically from 3 to 5.5% ABV. And then during the 20th century, bitter becomes the most popular type of draft beer sold in British pubs and is described as the national drink of England. At least it was until quite recently. Uh, In Scotland, bitter is known as either light or heavy, depending on the strength, colour and body. And bitter is traditionally cask conditioned and dispensed by gravity through a tap in the cask. Although obviously these days you can get anything in a can. So it's kind of out the window. Uh, Different types. You've got light ale, which is a low alcohol bitter and is often bottled. You've got golden ale, which is quite similar really in in appearance and taste to uh, a lager, a pale lager. Session or ordinary bitter, which is when the strength is up to 4.1%. And that's the most common strength of bitter sold in British pubs, at least up to 2003, at which point it accounted for nearly 17% of pub sales. Um, it's it, it it's funny because like 2003 doesn't sound that long ago in in one way, but in craft beer terms, it's like a lifetime ago. It's a whole generation ago. Um, best or special bitter, 
is when the strength is between 4.2 and 4.7 ABV. Um, and bitter that was around that strength accounted for just under 3% of pub sales in 2003. So like, take that in for a moment. Isn't that weird? That like when mm. you think about how strong beer is now that you generally get when you look at the menus in bars, only 3% was above 4.2 and the majority of it was below. Uh, and premium or strong bitter is when it's 4.8% um, and above. So most purists will say the only way to define a bitter is by its English ingredients. So that's things like crystal malt, uh, Maris otter or Fuggles hops, and English yeast, for example. And that they should all balance perfectly. So by contrast, if you are brewing something like, you know, a, a Belgian or a Hefeweizen, then the yeast takes over the flavour of the beer. When you're brewing something like an IPA, obviously the hops are going to be the most prevalent ingredient. And in something like a, a stout, it's all about the grain flavours. So bitter shouldn't let anything take over. In other words, it's actually not really a bitter tasting beer. <laughs> IPA is about five times more bitter than bitter on average. So for, for perhaps younger people who don't remember the, the olden days of bitter and what it tasted like, don't be fools, bitter is less bitter than IPA. So why call it bitter? Uh, so it's because, as I say at the time, it was to distinguish it from the popular stouts and porters and dark beers, called mild, which were less bitter. So they were more sweet, really. I mean, they still are. And at the time, when they were naming it, they were comparing it to that, rather than the heavily hopped beers that now dominate the craft scene. But obviously the name remains. Sometimes you'll see English-style bitter which uh, may mean that it's using English ingredients or technique, but it's made outside England. So you'll get a lot of English-style bitters coming from uh, America, for example. It doesn't have a protected origin, like a lot of the drinks we explore. So calling something English-style bitter is more sort of out of courtesy uh, than any kind of requirement. Confusingly, you may also see ESB labelled on bitters, which doesn't refer to English style bitter, even though it's got the same acronym. It means extra special bitter, which refers to the increased um, ABV strength of between about five and 6%. So there you go. Lots of confusing, confusing things about bitter already. Mm. Uh, so shall I tell you about, a bit about London Pride, seeing as that's what I'm about to sip? How, how strong is London Pride? It's not very strong. Um, mm. it's, it's in the... Um, it's not in the extra special, it's sort of around 4.2, I think. Um, so, London Pride is the flagship beer of Fuller's Brewery, and it's sold cask-conditioned and bottled. It's been brewed at the Griffin Brewery since 1958, which is in Chiswick, um, incidentally, uh, just across the road from our old friend Hogarth's house. In mm. fact, spitting distance of there. London Pride takes its name from a common name for the Saxifraga exurbium flower since the 19th century. It's been, it's been known as that, which is an evergreen perennial garden flowering plant. And it provides very rapid ground cover, but it's not considered to be invasive. Um, so in late spring, it produces this mass of small pale pink rosette flowers. And it grows very well in neglected and unfavourable urban spaces where you'll at, we, you won't get many flowers otherwise. Uh, it's got some fun alternative names. 
aside from London Pride, St. Patrick's Cabbage, <laughs> Whimsy, Prattling Parnell, and my favourite, Look Up and Kiss Me. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, before 1700, the name London Pride was actually given to what we now call Sweet William. So London oh, Pride switched. I love Sweet William. They are nice, aren't they? They're very lovely. Mm. Um, but yeah, it switched over from Sweet William to uh, the Saxifrage Exerbium. In the language of flowers, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, London Pride is uh, stands for frivolity, and its day is 27th of July. Um, this this flower provided um, it, quite a big symbol for London during the Blitz, uh, the London Blitz in the early 1940s. Because it was the first flower to really grow out of all the bombed sites. As I say, it, it grows in harsh conditions in mm. urban sites. And so for that reason, it was held um, in quite high, high regards, like a symbol for the resilience of Londoners during the Blitz. And uh, in 1941, it was even celebrated by Noel Coward in a patriotic song. Um, much to the tune of um, the, the flower seller song in Oliver. <laughs> Are you going like to serenade me? Or? Absolutely not, no. Mm. Um, no, no, Noel Coward can do that on Spotify if you want. <laughs> uh, so that was a nice thing that was written about it. <laughs> However, uh, Bishop Walsham Howe also wrote a poem to the flower, rebuking it for having the sin of pride. <gasps> this was in the 19th century. Um, and when he was told that the flower had the name London Pride because Londoners were proud of it, he then wrote another poem apologising to the flower. <laughs> <laughs> So I think maybe the moral of this story is just don't write diss poems about flowers until you've met them. <laughs> Especially if you're a bishop. Um, <laughs> that's weird, isn't it? Weird segues. Yeah. I tried to, uh, going through uh, the story of these these breweries. I tried to find like the weirdest bits of their history rather than the standard stuff. So I try um, and imagine it like back in the day, like you know, you get like edgy kids doing their poetry now. Do you think it was the same mm-hmm. thing? Like. Ugh. This is a diss track about that flower. Yeah, that is so full of pride that it's somehow going to go to hell, even though, it, even though it's just it's just a flower, <laughs> just getting on with its life. Uh, since two thousand and seven, London Pride has been the official beer of the London Marathon. Um, although I have to say, I've, I've <laughs> yeah, been those on... two go hand in hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've I've watched the marathon many times because it goes kind of past my my house, and. Um, I've never seen people kind of reaching for the bottles of beer as they jog over Tower Bridge, but um, that's why yeah. I don't do marathons because I would be that person. But that's <laughs> yeah. why I can't do a marathon. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, another another partnership that I enjoy from London Pride. This is in 2017. They partnered with the weatherman Michael Fish uh, to yes. offer Twitter followers a free pint each time it rained in London in February. 2017 Whoa. so the campaign was called when it rains it pours <laughs> great campaign name i yeah. know you hate marketing but that's great <laughs> oh no i've enjoyed it i've actually just for you i've tried to find quite a bit of marketing in my stories uh, this week <laughs> so there we go that was your first one that's london pride cheers to that mm. uh i'm gonna do john smith's next mm. my dad likes john smith's yeah interesting um i've gone for what i thought were the most popular bitters at the sort of at peak bitter popularity uh so let's find out so this is from the tadcaster brewery in north yorkshire 
and they produce beers including John Smith's, which is the highest selling bitter in the UK since the mid 90s. That still is. Mm. Apparently, thanks to your dad. Uh, the, the majority of John Smith sales are of the nitrogenated extra smooth product, which you may be familiar with. So John Smith, the man, acquired the Backhouse and Hartley Brewery in 1852, which had existed for a long time before, uh, which is exactly the time that Bitter's popularity was taking off, the 1850s. When John Smith died around 20 years later, his estate was worth, in today's equivalents, nearly £5 million. Uh, John Smith's brother, William, who ran the business after John's death uh, in 1879, he then uh, took over this new brewery, founded this new brewery, and left the old brewery to his young nephew, Samuel, in 1886. However, Samuel inherited this empty building uh, with a well, and all the equipment had been moved to the new brewery for John Smith's. Nevertheless, he was, uh, he thought, I can take advantage of this growing beer industry for Bitter, and he opened Samuel Smith's Brewery, Sam Smith's, under his own name, and was able to compete with the then-established John Smith's Brewery. So it exists today, operating under those traditional conditions. They transport their beer by horse traps. Uh, if you've ever been in a Sam Smith's, you'll know it's kind of peculiar, because they don't sell other brands apart from their own. They have Uh, no music they have a rule about having no mobile phones and no laptops and all that sort of stuff and it's certainly not without its contentious working practices um (laughs) but yeah i until this um this bit of research i did not know that john smith's and sam smith's were family were related until that they're not the same brewery they're different breweries but they started from uh from the same place so there you go um john smith's went through a lot of acquisitions and has been part of heineken since 2008 which means that the tadcaster brewery site now also produces amstel and cronenberg at their 38 million liter capacity brewery which is one of the largest in the country um bit of ads for john smith's i'm sure you remember this uh from 1992 until 97 it was fronted by comedian jack d uh who starred in their no nonsense campaign and that campaign was super popular and widely credited with helping john smith's rise from the 16th to the fourth highest selling beer in the uk as their sales increased by 65%. And also for raising Jack D's profile as well. It's not that he hadn't been a successful comedian to an extent beforehand, but then he became very much a household name. Didn't um, Mel Sykes... I'm sure she was like the face of John Smith for a while. Or definitely nope. bitter. Nope, you're jumping the gun and I will get to oh, that. Oh, <laughs> John Smith. No, so, so Jack D did the 90s and that was... After he left, it was followed by No Nonsense Man who was a cardboard cutout that got put in two different scenarios. So he was meant to be sort of a representation of that no-nonsense downness that Jack D helped them develop as a brand. But it was not popular at all, and it didn't last long. Um, And he was eventually replaced um, in the 21st century by Peter Kay, uh, doing the John Smith's ads. And um, they didn't go down too well either. Although it it did kind of help raise sales much more than no-nonsense man did, the cultural tide had turned by then and it was considered too laddish you know they were already starting to market beers in a, uh, particularly bitters in a different way um and it, it didn't go down well with the other breweries who said you're kind of missing the mark in how to brand this now 
Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a different switch, isn't it? Jack D is just very dry, and then Peter K is just a very happy, jolly little man. It's just two very different comedians there. Yeah, I would say more sort of in the oeuvre brash than happy and jolly, personally. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that's how it was Hold perceived cord. as well. <laughs> um, all right, I want you to guess what the next bitter is from this little intro description. So this is an ale that took its name from an experimental car called the MG Featherlight Saloon. The car's body was made of a wooden frame covered with gold and black cellulose fabric, and it was used as a runaround for workers in the MG factory in Abington, and was called... It was nicknamed... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Mesopotamia. <laughs> it's not. It's not called Mesopotamia. No bitter called Mesopotamia, to my knowledge. No, no ideas. No. Old speckled hen. Oh god damn! They called it the old speckled hen because of the gold speckled on the black fabric. Yeah, um, it's just in the oh, feather light you saloon. Said, um, you said Ab something that made me think of Abbott's ale, but I knew it wasn't Abbott's. It was the name of the place. So. Yeah, Ab- no, Abingdon. It's not that. <laughs> yeah. So Old Speckled Hen is a premium bitter from the Moorland Brewery, uh, which is now owned by Green King Brewery. So Old Speckled Hen was first brewed in 1979 uh, in Abingdon, which is in Oxfordshire. And it was to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the MG Car Factory. Um, so they made 1,200 packs of dozen half pint bottles, if that made sense. Um, and it was for the promotional activities at MG for this car company. Uh, but also they uh, did some limited distribution to the Moorland houses in the Abingdon area. So they produced this as a one-off celebration brew, but it was so popular that they needed to make a second match uh, batch so uh, that it would be ready for the main celebrations. <laughs> so I think what happened is they distributed it. Everyone drank it immediately and they're like, oh, we haven't got any for the celebrations now. So they made a second <laughs> batch um, and uh, to have over the weekend of the actual anniversary. And it was really I've done that popular. so many times. You know, like where... I've done, for this podcast. Like Christmas or New Year when you've got people coming down for the weekend and you just get loads of booze in because you're going to have a big night on the Saturday but you drink it all on the Friday and, and ruin the whole weekend because <laughs> you're already out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've you done it for this podcast a number of times where you bought something for the theme and then had it the night before. <laughs> yeah, can't be trusted. <laughs> so that was 1979 to, to celebrate the MG Car Factory's 50th anniversary. The factory closed the following year. <laughs> oh, no. I'm not sure we should blame it on Old Speckled Hen, but it is suspicious. Um, but... Uh, so the production declined. Old Speckled Hen was almost exclusively available in the pubs that were operating around Moorland due to the financial constraints they were under. Uh, the brewery was going to go in a different direction. It thought its its future lay in lager. Uh, but then within a few years of doing that, Moorland sort of re-explored the ale production. They revived Old Speckled Hen and then they launched the draft version in 1990 and it was very successful. So it's kind of weird that this was like just a bit of advertising from a car company that went under 10 years prior to this being launched as a draft, but that is Old Speckled Hen's story. Um, in fact, they, they told this story, the, the advertising originated uh, by working with the Saatchi group who designed the new label. And it was, if you, if you can picture the label, it's based on the MG Octagon to show the link between MG and Moreland. 
and they researched the brand and discovered that landlords were often being asked where the name came from. So they um, decided to put the story on the label, on the reverse of the bottle, um, so that the, the poor landlords wouldn't be bothered by it anymore. Um, and they also rebranded the bitter as 1711, which was the year of Moreland Brewery's foundation, even though that's obviously a lie. Um, and also renamed the best bitter as Old Masters. And that is a nod to George Moreland, who was also an artist and painter. So they were trying to give it kind of more history than it had, really. Uh, shocker. <laughs> Lying marketing people. I think it's I think it's original story is much more interesting than pretending it's something to do with old masters in 1711. Yeah, it is. Um, so since 2000, when Green King bought Moreland and closed down the Abingdon Brewery, it's been made in Green King's Bury St Edmunds Brewery instead. And it's exported to over 40 countries including Singapore, where 200 pints a day are sold in a single pub. And in the US, it's available in 32 of the 50 states and is particularly popular in New York City. I have said I have experienced its popularity in the US myself in several locations, and it's always shocking. That you, wow. you go into a pub and people are like, oh, should we get some old speckled hen? And I'm like, no, you've got... <laughs> You've got some lovely West Coast pale ales here or, you know, New England IPA or whatever it is. And the branding over there is so successful that they genuinely think it's the best beer to have come out of Britain, which is... Um, That's a shame. I don't... I, in, yeah, like, I don't want to be too rude to Old Speckled Hen. They've done nothing to me personally, but is objectively not true. Mm. <laughs> but they love it. Like, I, I remember having nights out in the US quite a few times with uh, Americans choosing to drink Old Speckled Hen over everything else and it's quite baffling. Weird. Hmm. Right, here's the one you were um, thinking of earlier. Boddington's. Ah, yes. So Boddington's Brewery was um, a regional brewery from Manchester um, and they had some pubs throughout the Northwest. Best known for Boddington's Bitter or Bodies as it was otherwise known um, which is a hoppy bitter and one of the first beers, in fact, to be packaged in cans containing a widget. Um, do you remember the widgets? I do. I remember my dad being really obsessed with them when I was a child. Yeah. And I'm, I actually, I remember because, like, on the weekend, if my dad would have... Um, it must have been Boddington's back then, if they were the first. If my dad had a Boddington's. I used to love, like, looking at the little widget at the bottom of the can mm-hmm. when you finished it. So it's it. it's like a little white plastic ball that stays in the mm. can and doesn't go through the hole. And the idea is that when you pour it, it makes the head extra creamy and like you were having it on draft. So that's mm. what the widgets were, but I haven't seen them around for a long time. Um, so the, the Boddington's logo has two Bs on it and they were introduced way back in 1900. And bees are a symbol of Manchester, and that's from the time when it was called the Hive of Industry. So they have their, their bee symbology all around uh, the businesses there. But the two bees also are a pun on the company name of Boddington's Breweries. Uh, I see. You got it? Yep. You sure? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for most of its time, it was based at Strangeways Brewery, uh, which was founded in 1778. And then Henry Boddington became the sole owner in 1853. After his son, William Boddington, took over in 1888, it became known as Boddington's Brewery. Uh, 
Uh, so it's one of the older ones of the ones I've looked at. Uh, in January 1902, 86% of their production was mild ale. Uh, but then in December of 1940, the brewery water tanks were hit by bombs during the Manchester Blitz. Another Blitz connection for bitter. Um, mm. And the brewery had to be closed down for several months. And then when they rebuilt it with the most up-to-date um, equipment, um, they were actually the first in Europe to install stainless steel brewing vats. So a few firsts for Boddington's. Uh, but when they rebuilt that, bitter was growing in popularity again after the Second World War. And so that overtook the mild sales from the 1950s onwards. Uh, Whitbread bought Boddington's Brewery in 1989. And uh, the Boddington's Bitter received this increased marketing budget and a broader distribution. And then in the 1990s, the beer was promoted as the Cream of Manchester, uh, in this popular advertising campaign, which was credited with raising Manchester's profile in the 90s alongside Manchester United and Oasis. They were like, those are the big three <laughs> things of Manchester that's made it so kind of cool and popular. Uh, the TV ads, this is what you're remembering, featured beautiful women with strong Mancunian accents, like Melanie Sykes, I've put in my notes. Mm. Um, and, you know, kind of did this, what was seen as a bit of an impossible task of making bitter glamorous because <laughs> it was such an old man drink even though it was very popular um the most famous of the tele- television ads they came out with featured a, a glamorous couple on board a gondola and the joke was that they were on manchester's river Irwell. so it was a parody <laughs> of the cornetto ad the just one cornetto on the gondola in venice um <laughs> And they said it was to tell the world about the reinvention of the murky old city of Manchester and that its once filthy waterways could now uh, pass for Venice. (laughs) Ambitious, but it was certainly popular. (laughs) Um, And then they really got their peak market share in 1997. um, And at that time was also exported to over 40 countries like Old Speckled Ham. But I'm going to tell you about a time that wasn't so good for Boddington's because they were one of the breweries that were implicated in the 1900 English beer poisoning epidemic. You ever heard of this? No. Mm. So 6,000 people were poisoned by arsenic and 70 people died from drinking beer. So this illness was prevalent around the Midlands and uh, Northwest England. Manchester was the most heavily affected. It was, for quite a long time, misdiagnosed as alcoholic neuropathy, because drinkers were getting ill. Um, And the main epidemic was only recognised after quite a few months. So these cases of neuritis were eventually connected to uh, other cases of skin discoloration. So they thought they were unrelated at first. Um, Mm -hmm. But then a guy called Ernest Reynolds, uh, who was a doctor, kind of started making that connection. Um, He noted, really, that there was only one substance that could cause both of those symptoms, the skin discoloration and the neuritis, and that is arsenic. Uh, He also observed that heavy drinkers who drank mainly spirits were less affected than the beer drinkers. So he gathered samples uh, for analysis from the taverns that those patients went to and confirmed the presence of arsenic in the beer they had been consuming. So how did that happen? Well to lower costs which had been kind of escalating in terms of production at that time some breweries were substituting high quality barley malt with low quality barley malt that had been supplemented with sugar Um, and this is a controversial practice Uh, part of the 
pure beer movement, there was an inquiry um, on the use of brewing substitutes. So you might be familiar that Germany has pure beer brewing legislations. We've spoken about that before. And this was like an effort to do the same thing in England. They started this inquiry in 1896, ended in 1999. And the panel had concluded that brewing substitutes were not deleterious materials under the Sale of Food and Drugs Act 1875. And that further legislation was not required. So no Pure Beer Act. Um, the sugar that they'd been using to, to substitute it was made by acid hydrolysis of starch. So starch is heated in the presence of an acid, which helps form the glucose. And that had been employed commercially for a long time, since 1814. Uh, the, the company that was responsible, Bostock & Co., were using sulfuric acid to perform the acid hydrolysis, which was purchased from a company called Nicholson & Sons, I think it's more a lesson of don't have long supply chains if you're making a food product. Um, <laughs> so Nicholson and Sons were making their sulfuric acid from pyrites, which also contained arsenic, which was remaining in the final product. Now, if it had just been that one thing, in this country, we probably would have a pure beer act now. But it was also found that arsenic was also introduced into the beer by the malted barley in the kilning stage. So the barley humidity content is reduced by drying the grain with hot vapors, and that was fueled by coke or coal at the time. Um, and it was found that arsenic was present in the fuel and then was then deposited upon the barley before it had been steeping. So that was also present in the final product. So what that means is that the attempts to revive the pure beer movement were cut short because the com um, commission's report said that the arsenic was present in the malted barley as well as the sugar. So they couldn't just solely blame it on the extra products that were being put in. Um, so they said there's no direct effects um, and there's there's no legislation. So yeah, UK does not have a pure beer movement. Isle of Man does, actually, because they set their own laws, um, being a bit more independent. They actually do still have um, pure beer laws, although it's been slightly amended so that they can mm -hmm. have things like fruit beers and stuff. There you go. That is um, that is my rapid journey through four of the most popular bitters of England with uh, some little quirky stories attached. Well, yeah, you've done bitter, so I'm going to do bitters. You are bitter, um, bitterer. <laughs> I'm bitterer. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to do bitters. They're essentially the guys that have, like, the monopoly on bitters. If you... If you look at any bar, they've got the Angostura bitters there, and it's quite a distinctive bottle. Um, you'll have seen it. It's got a bright yellow cap, and more prominent is it's got an oversized label. It's got like a really big white label that's just too big for the bottle. Um, apparently, that is a thing. Uh, it might be marketing bullshit, uh, but legend goes. Um, Back in the earlier days of producing the Angostura Bitters, um, they were trying to market it as any way they could. That included entering them quickly into a competition that they'd found out about. And in a scramble to get the product ready, um, one of the partners went to get the bottles, another partner went to get the labels, they came together and they were all the wrong size. The label was far too big for the bottles and they were like, we don't have time to fix this, we're just going to have to run with it. So they shoved the oversized labels onto the bottles submitted them to the um, competition. Um, although they didn't win the competition, the judges did suggest that they kept that label as their signature. They said it's 
distinctive and we like it. Mm. And apparently they stuck with that. But um, I think hopefully now I've described it, you know, the ones that I mean. We've all seen the oversized label on the back of the bar. So it's those. They are Angostura bitters. Um, I didn't realise how alcoholic they were. They are 44%. That was a bit of a shock to me. Um, so yeah, it's concentrated bitter, as, as you mentioned, lots of bitter um, ingredients, mainly herbs, spices and gentian. Um, so gentian is a clear distilled alcoholic beverage that's produced in mountainous areas using the root of gentian. Not So gentian is a plant and it flowers. Lots of people think that it's made with the flower, but it's not. It's made with the root. Um, a lot of the times when you buy this um, distilled gentian drink, it's got the flowers on the label, because obviously that looks nicer, but it's not made from them. It's made from the root. And Angostura bitters are trademarked, and they are produced in Trinidad and Tobago by House of Angostura, which sounds like a great drag family. <laughs> Please welcome to the stage, Shablam Angostura. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Angostura bitters are made in Trinidad and Tobago, not originated from there, um, and that's where the name comes from. They were first produced in the town of Angostura in uh, Venezuela, mm. hence the name. Lots of people think the name comes from the fact that they contain Angostura bark, Angostura bitters, but they don't. They don't mm. contain any Angostura bark. It's purely because it was produced in the town of Angostura. Um, however, you do have beverages, mixers mainly, that have the name Angostura on them, like Fever Tree have a tonic with Angostura bitters. Um, and I think because Angostura bitters have the trademark, um, it's their way of kind of getting around being able to use the word Angostura in the product name is because they contain Angostura bark. So there's some confusion there. Mm. If you're drinking Angostura bitters, there's no Angostura bark in that. If you're drinking anything else with the word Angostura in it, it has Angostura bark in it and that's how they're allowed to use it. Man, this episode's confusing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um... So, yeah, uses. Um, as you say, it's very bitter, so it's not normally drunk neat or undiluted, used in small amounts as flavouring. Uh, they're also alleged to have restorative properties. Uh, it's still often used in Trinidad um, to treat digestive problems. It's believed that the gentian aids um, in digestion. But a long, 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 long time ago, a lot of people used to believe that it had poisonous qualities because it was associated with Angostura bark. However, Angostura bark isn't toxic. There's no poison in there. A lot of people thought it was poisonous, but it's not mm. because lots of people used to sell Angostura bark under the guise that it was Angostura bark, but it wasn't. It was padded out with other cheaper sacks of bark, which were poisonous, um, Copalchi bark being one of those. So lots of people were slagging off Angostura bark for poisoning them when it hadn't, mm. actually. It was just your nasty seller was cutting it with nasty bark. It's always the story, isn't it? It's, yeah. always, it's always people trying to make a cheap buck by putting in stuff they shouldn't, and then the poor, kind of pure-branded alcohol gets the blame. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the history of Angus Trebritus is quite interesting because to this day, like I've said, it's still got that like, kind of monopoly on the whole bitters market. It's always the one that you assume to see the barman using. Um, and from the kind of inception of it back in the 1800s, it's the age-old kind of marketing brand practices that we still see today, you know? Brand proposition, how they market it, who they market it to, influencers even back in then. I'm going to get into it, but it's really interesting to see that they were doing all the things that essentially we try and do today to market products. Uh, so the recipe was developed as a tonic by Johann Siegert. He was a German surgeon and he was in Simon Bolivar's army in Venezuela. He developed this um, tonic to help with stomach ailments. I've said earlier, gentian was apparently a good digestive, so he created this tonic to help with stomach ailments. And he began to sell it in 1824. And when he realised it was doing very well, he established a distillery in 1830. He was based in the town of, no surprises, Angostura, and he used locally available ingredients. It did very, very well for many, many years, and the product started to be sold abroad from 1853. Mainly England, the Caribbean and the USA. Um, That's when, in 1875, the manufacturing moved to Trinidad, where it's still today. So the family moved to Trinidad in 1875, and it was convenient the year before was when the Manhattan cocktail was created. The perfect timing for bitters to take the world by storm. So that's when you saw that kind of like brand position and shift from medicinal kind of tonic to, mm, it actually goes really well in these cocktails. Mm. And it was by 1900, they were probably thanking their lucky stars because that's when they started to... Um, Really, it was like the golden age of cocktails, really. It was, um, you know, the Savoy Hotel opened in the UK. That was 1880, but it was starting to really pick up by the early 1900s. The Ritz Hotel in Paris. And they started having the glitterati cocktails, um, the old-fashioned, the Manhattan. They were just taking Europe by storm. And lots and lots more bars were calling for bitters in their cocktail recipes. So there was a big shift from the kind of medicinal tonic of the Angostura bitters into the cocktail world. Which again was conveniently timed because in 1906 the Pure Food and Drug Act was passed in the US. That had a huge impact on the bitters industry because they were no longer able to sell um, unregulated medicines lots of the ingredient labels had to be really clear and they had to get use, get rid of the words like cure and tonic and medicinal that they they couldn't make false claims that they didn't they couldn't prove also lower alcohol limits were put in place so the whole bitters industry took a huge blow but fortunately thanks to the whole glitterati cocktail movement in europe that angostura bitters had just taken by storm it didn't affect them at all because they weren't really pitching themselves as a medicinal tonic. They were a a cocktail ingredient by this point. 
1912, the company was also appointed direct suppliers of Angostura aromatic bitters to His Majesty King George V. So that was their first influencer, I guess. <laughs> um, and by this time, there were more cocktails using bitters. The pink gin, the champagne cocktail, the daiquiri, the martini. The cocktails were coming in thick and fast. Which is why in 1917, the first ever recorded cocktail party was held. Mrs. Julius S. Walsh Jr. of St. Louis, Missouri, was reported to have invited 50 friends over to her mansion for a one-hour party of drinking and merriment, which she termed a cocktail party. Um, a variety of drinks were served. Among those, a lot of aromatic bitters were there, such as martinis, Manhattans, and the idea was seen as an innovation, and she even received public praise for the idea in the newspapers. Can you imagine that? Like that's like the first viral party. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who who wouldn't want sort of the Guardian reporting on their lovely cocktail party? It's yeah, a, it's a middle class person's wet dream. <laughs> <laughs> I just love how I. Part of me feels like it was all fate and luck, and it wasn't really the marketing genius strategy of Angostura bitters. They were just kind of. Right place, right time. But I just love how it's all moved at perfectly the right time mm. for them. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about, obviously, the war. Let's not mention the war and beyond, because it was mainly the close, like at the close of Prohibition, um, Angostura Bitters again saw an amazing peak because the tiki culture, which we've covered in previous um, podcasts, that uh, introduced a new era of rum cocktails, which called for more bitters. I'm drinking one today. Um, so yeah, around about that time, they just kept on growing and growing and growing. And by 1955, the company was again appointed manufacturers to the royal family, this time Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Today, well, at the time of writing this was true, today the brand remains the only British brand in the world that can present such credentials. However, I did have to look into this before we recorded because, sad news, the Queen has passed. What? <gasps> did you not know? I hadn't noticed. It's been very quiet on <laughs> um, the news. But I just looked into it because um, I, I did wonder what happens with that then? Because they've been appointed official suppliers and manufacturers. Mm-hmm. And King and Charles going... is more into biscuits <laughs> than booze. Well, King, King Charles has his own that he has um, appointed as Prince of Wales. So the Prince of Wales has appointed his. There's several um, biscuits and he seems more into champagne. I think there were like six champagnes on there. Um, so it's all up in the air at the moment. But apparently there are around 300 food and drink brands that would be affected by um the news of the queen passing because yeah. it's not been confirmed as to whether or not those kind of accreditations would go away or not um so i i did quickly look into it and i think the one that i subconsciously hadn't realized was on a bottle of heinz ketchup mm-hmm. there's the, like a royal crest on the label on the neck so that's what that is, essentially. If you were appointed manufacturers to Her Majesty the Queen, you're allowed to put that on your label. 
Um, you do have to reapply every five years to use that crest and the accreditation that's been given to you. Um, but there's no real kind of guidance as to whether or not that stops when she passes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been suggested that they just have to reapply and King Charles has to allow them to use it. But it'd be really awkward, wouldn't it, if he goes, actually, no, I don't like ketchup. <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm just not into that. That's really interesting. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like how every few years they update sort of the typical shopping basket. And mm-hmm. they're like, oh, no one's buying irons anymore. It's all phones or something. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like that, isn't it? It's like an update yeah. of consumer tastes. Interesting. Some of them have been long-standing and have seen several um, different monarchs. Like, um, oh, I can't remember which one it was. I think it was Waitrose. Waitrose and Fortnum and Mason have been just long-standing ones. And it's almost like, it sounds like they don't really have to reapply. It's like, yeah, you're always going to be on the list, guys. Don't worry. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you don't, Um, you can't get much posher than them, can you? (laughs) (laughs) It's not like they're suddenly going to be usurped by Asda. <laughs> but it's a, it's a real like pain in the neck for people if they don't get it, you know, mm. reaccredited. Expensive. They have to change all the labels and yeah, 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 pain in the neck. Anyway, so yes, they were appointed manufacturers to the Queen in 1955, um, and then the 1960s is where it got interesting. Because I think that's perhaps when they started thinking more about marketing strategy and they were trying to move it in different directions. Um, And they started suggesting that they used Angostura aromatic bitters in culinary applications, not just drinks. Uh, There was a launch of The Secret of Good Taste, the Angostura cookbook, which championed the practice of adding a dash of bitters to everyday cooking to give it a splash of international flair. Mm-hmm. So from what I read, it's in, in the 1960s, it was more kind of akin to how we use Liam Perrins, just like a little dash here and there. Mm-hmm. But I did find some amazing recipes on the Angostura Bitters website that I will come on to later. But watch this space, you'll all be cooking with it soon. <laughs> Um, they've not really done a hell of a lot of innovation. I don't think they've needed to because they've just got such a solid kind of foundation on the back of the bars <laughs> everywhere. Mm. However, they did do some in 2007. They produced Angostura Orange, an orange bitters with bright floral notes and fresh orange peel. It was actually the company's first innovation in 200 years. Wow. I mean, if it ain't broke. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they probably realised that because it didn't really dominate the orange bitters market in the same way that the aromatic bitters did. Um, the only other thing of note, really, in the more kind of modern history is that in 2009, there was a shortage of Angostura bitters. Uh, the company reported that the primary problem was a shortage of bottles there were other rumours that a product recall or that production of the bitters had stopped in the plant at Trinidad. Um, there were lots of news stories, but I think it was just a case that they couldn't get the bottles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're still making it. Everyone chill out. Um, I've got to talk about cocktails, haven't I? Of course. Of course. I mean, actually, it was only it was only 
a few episodes ago, I had um, I had an old fashioned for the aging mm. episode. If you remember, got so my got Angostura. I'm looking at it of right course. now. <laughs> on its oversized label and its yellow cap. <laughs> um. So I think before people started mixing it with other alcohol, it did become popular in just soda water. So just soda water with the bitters in, that was uh, quite popular. But then that was upgraded then with a bit of gin. <laughs> uh, that mix then stuck in the form of pink gin. And I think that's why Angostura bitters are quite popular in like the likes of Fever Tree. It's just still got those connotations of the pink gin. Mm-hmm. Also used in many other cocktails, such as a long vodka, which is vodka, bitters and lemonade. As we've already mentioned, uh, lots of whiskey cocktails like the Old Fashioned and Manhattans. Also, I'm a big fan of a Pisco Sour. Mm. Food drops are sprinkled on top of the foam. Um, in Australia and New Zealand, um, they're used in what they call soft drinks, which is lemon, lime and bitters. Um, in Malawi, bitters are added to a mix of crushed ice, ginger ale and Sprite to make a rock shandy. That sounds delicious. I would definitely drink many of those. Um, among certain bartending communities, um, especially in Malaysia, shots of Angostura are taken as a bartender's handshake, which is just straight one. So although I said at the start, it's an acquired taste, it's strong, it's bitter... People don't drink it undiluted. In Malaysia, they do. When the shift's done, they're like, yeah, shot of bitters, why not? Mm. (laughs) Um, The largest purveyor of Angostura bitters in the world is... Any guesses? The largest... The largest purveyor. So the the people who sell the most? Mm Mm-hmm. As in, like, the bars sell the most? Yes. Okay, I was like, are you talking about supply chains? Are you talking about people drinking a lot? (laughs) Where in the world do we get most people drinking it? Oh, okay. Well, do you know what then? I will go back to my original, I think it's popular in Italy, and just say Italy. Hmm. It's a bit niche, this one. I think it's definitely an anomaly. (laughs) So there's a pub uh, on Washington Island off the northeast tip of the Door Peninsula. In Wisconsin. Just the tip. It's called Just the Tip. Mm-hmm. Nelson's Hall Bitters Pub. So the pub began selling shots of bitters as a stomach tonic for medicinal purposes. So I'm guessing like we do the whole wheatgrass thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that practice helped the pub to become the oldest continuously operating tavern in Wisconsin. And it remained a tradition after the repeal of Prohibition. So I'm not talking modern day here, sorry, by the way. I should have said that. This is back in Prohibition. They started doing the shots of tonic as um, medicinal purposes, uh, which is why it's remained a tradition beyond that. And as of 2018, the pub still hosts a bitters club, which incorporates bitters into the food um, and they sell upward of 10,000 shots a year still to this day. Wow. So they've got a menu with loads of the bitters in there. They sell shots of the bitters. And yeah, just a random little pub in Wisconsin. So if you are a fan of the bitters, put it on your spreadsheet. I hope hope everyone listening has got their own personal spreadsheets by this point. (laughs) Because we can't keep track of all of it for you. (laughs) 
<laughs> I can barely tra- keep track of hours. You can barely keep um... track of anything. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I did keep track of was those recipes I mentioned. Oh, yeah. Hit me. Oh, mate. Okay. First up, an espresso martini yogurt. Mm. Okay. So you need Greek... We're going to have to try and veganise this, but uh, Greek yogurt, Uh heavy cream, granulated sugar, dark rum, and Angostura bitters. Okay. Combine that into a bowl and whisk, then put it in the fridge for two hours... Then you're going to make a reduction whilst that's in the fridge. So you're going to get some espresso powder, water and sugar. Put that in a pot, then reduce it and simmer until it becomes a glaze. Then you just take your refrigerated mix out of the fridge, put the glaze on top and enjoy your espresso martini yogurt. Okay, got it. Yep. Sweet and creamy. Next, The next one is a spread. Uh, an aubergine spread so I had to adapt this because it's eggplant it's up to you whether you want me to say eggplant or aubergine Um, I want you to say dick emoji okay cut slits into the skin of the dick emoji (laughs) I didn't know you were going to say cut slits in the skin (laughs) (laughs) could have warned me cut slits in the skin of the dick emoji and insert garlic (laughs) yep (laughs) <laughs> you then take the dick emoji yeah. and over an open flame blacken it mm-hmm. uh, you then put the dick emoji in the oven and cook until it's soft all the way through mm-hmm. you take the dick emoji out of the oven mm-hmm. remove the flesh from the skin and put it in a blender with the rest of the ingredients which is tahini, yoghurt and bitters and a bit of salt and pepper to taste you will then have a delicious Dick emoji spread, flavoured with Angostura bitters that you can serve with warm pita bread, crackers, whatever you want. So A, that that was much more violent than I was anticipating. But um, I <laughs> I make that sort of thing all the time. I just don't add bitters. So there now I'm going to try it. Because no, I do make, I make aubergine dips. Also. In fact, I sent you a photo of it last week. I made a nice you aubergine did. dip. I'll just add bitters next time. Yes. Another one, I know you love a marinade. This one's a nice sure, marinade. Sure. Um, soy sauce, pepper flakes, black pepper, garlic, thyme, olive oil, dark rum, your Angostura bitters, and some sugar. And that's a delicious soy style marinade. Nice. Yeah, that sounds kind of like a boozy teriyaki or something. Mm. <laughs> Last but definitely not least is the naughtiest sounding one. Mm-hmm. Mm. Angostura deep chocolate sauce. Is it? Is it because it's got the word deep in it? Oh, it's just everything. <laughs> Wait, let me just read it out. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> so you combine milk, Angostura bitters and brandy in a glass or a microwavable bowl. Microwave until very warm and gradually add cocoa powder, whisking after each addition until smooth. Drizzle in a bit more milk if needed. The sauce will thicken considerably when chilled, but will warm up nicely in the microwave. Use as needed. <laughs> I love how vague that is. So it's, it's a hot chocolate. <laughs> it, it's like one of those really thick hot chocolates. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, nice. And it's really boozy and I want it 
everywhere. <laughs> wow. I feel a sudden need to move on. <laughs> Are you, is that it? Are you done? I'm done. I'm done. I'm so done. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can tell. Um, thank you. That was delicious. I'm probably going to try a lot of that, actually. Um, right. I thought we should round off. You remember we did the sour episode a while back? And mm-hmm. in addition to all the sour drinks, we talked about sort of how sourness works as a as a sense, as a taste. So I thought I'd do the same for bitter. See what's going on there. So bitterness is one of the most sensitive of the tastes. And a lot of people perceive it as quite unpleasant, sharp, disagreeable kind of flavour. But um, it's sometimes desired, you know, added intentionally via various bittering agents. So common things that that would include, common bitter foods, are coffee, uh, unsweetened cocoa, citrus peel, many plants in the um, brassica family as well. So cabbages, broccoli, that sort of stuff. Um, The ethanol in... So alcohol, basically, the ethanol in alcoholic beverages also tastes bitter, um, as do additional bitter ingredients found in certain alcoholic beverages, for example, hops in beer um, and gentian in bitters, as you've just explained. Quinine is also known for its bitter taste, and of course we get that in tonic water. So yeah, in general, bitterness is kind of supposed to be unpleasant, but... As we kind of found out with sour as well, people sort of get certain thrills from different flavours and it's often all about balancing things out. So you've got sort of more of a symphony uh, going on in what you're tasting than it just being one note. Um, Bitterness is uh, the taste that's quite interesting to a lot of uh, people who study evolution because um, natural bitter compounds are often found in things that are toxic. And so, therefore, the ability to detect bitter-tasting toxic compounds at low thresholds is considered to be quite an important protective function. So, plant leaves often contain toxic uh, compounds, and among leaf-eating primates, there is a tendency to then prefer the the immature leaves, the baby leaves, which are higher in protein and they're lower in fibre and poisons than the mature leaves. So like when you said people were suspicious about the Angostura bark being toxic because it tastes bitter, that's because we've learnt it all of our human development. Um, <laughs> but amongst humans, we have uh, food processing techniques that detoxify otherwise inedible foods and then make them palatable. So things like the use of fire, changes in diet, avoidance of toxins has led to this sort of neutral evolution in our bitter sensitivity in the human bitter sensitivity which has allowed a bit of a loss of function uh, and mutations that has led to this reduced sensory capacity towards bitterness compared to other species so we just are not that sensitive to bitter stuff anymore which is why you know we love things like coffee and so forth where perhaps other animals don't um the taste thresholds of other bitter substances are actually rated relative to quinine, did you know? So quinine has a reference index of one. That is where we start when we taste anything bitter. We're like, is it more or less bitter than quinine, which is one. So for example, something called brucine, which is a poison that's associated with strychnine, 
has an index of 11. So it's perceived as more bitter than quinine and is also detected at a much lower solution threshold, which is good for us because it's pretty toxic. Um, however, <laughs> the most bitter natural substance is amaragentin, which is a compound present in the roots of the plant Gentiana lutea. Does that sound familiar? So gentian is the most bitter natural substance we've got, and yet we like it and we put it in drinks and stuff. So that's why our sort of reactions to bitterness are now evolutionarily so messed up. Um, <laughs> the most bitter substance known is the synthetic chemical denatonium, which um, has an index of 1,000. So it's 1,000 times more bitter than quinine. Um, and that's used as an aversive agent. So it's added to toxic substances that might not otherwise kind of taste repellent to help prevent accidental ingestion. Um, and it was discovered accidentally in 1958 in Edinburgh when people were doing research on a local anaesthetic. They discovered this thing existed and so it gets added to stuff as a safety precaution. Um, Quite recently, 2010, researchers found that bitter taste receptors also exist in lung tissue, so not just on the tongue. And when they are activated, it causes the airways to relax. So when they find a bitter substance, the airways relax. And they, we believe that that mechanism is an evolutionary adaptation that helps clear lung infections. But knowing that could also help treat things like asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. But yeah, taste buds in our lungs, don't you know? No. Weird thought, isn't it? Um, Aristotle. I, had to, I haven't been to the classics yet. You knew it was coming at some point. <laughs> um, Aristotle uh, suggested in circa 350 BCE that the two most basic tastes were sweet and bitter. Uh, so he was... I think, as far as we know, the first identified person to develop a list of basic tastes. So he thought it was just sweet and bitter. We now know it as sweet, bitter, sour, salty, and savoury or umami. Um, the ancient Chinese also regarded spiciness as a basic taste. Mm -hmm. And in Ayurveda, which is an ancient Indian healing science, uh, their basic tastes are sweet, salty, sour, pungent, astringent and bitter interesting yeah so here's sort of the truth of that the tongue can also feel other sensations that are not generally included in the five basic tastes as we know them but these are largely detected by what's called the somatosensory system um, which means the sensation doesn't arise from the taste buds it comes from a different set of nerve fibers that carry it to the brain so while in sort of, you know, in principle, yes, we can taste those things, we're not actually using our taste buds and therefore it's not our sense of taste. It's a different sense. Mm -hmm. See what I mean? Um, I've got one final thing for you, which I know you're absolutely going to love and um, you're going to have to look at the chat box um, in, uh, in our call. And um, that is, speaking of tongues and bitter, do you know the tongue twister that includes Betty Botter bought bitter butter? Oh, God, no. Have you heard of that? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a tongue twister written by a very prolific American author called Carolyn Wells. 
uh, in the late 19th century, wrote 100, 170 books, uh, and that included lots of nonsense verse for children. Uh, so as a treat to end on, I thought we'd uh, make you finish by reading that as fast as you can. Are you ready? I mean, you could have done this at the start before I drunk a very strong rum punch. I think you know very well why I left it to the end. Um, <laughs> I'd like you to read this out loud as fast as you possibly can, please. I'm just posting it in the chat now. Okay. <clears throat> Betty bought a... God, that's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> Take two. Okay. Betty Butter bought some butter, but, said she, this butter's bitter. If I put it in my batter, it will make my batter bitter. But a bitter better butter will make my batter better. Then she bought a bitter butter, better than a bitter butter, made her bitter batter better, so it was Betty... Oh, I was so close! <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was doing really well then. Finish her. Oh, so it was better... Oh, that's so hard, that hard <laughs> sentence. So, it was better Betty Butter bought a bit of better butter. Yay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was feeling so smug halfway through. I was like, I've got this. <laughs> uh, the look on your face when you know I'm setting you a challenge. <laughs> oh, your turn. That one can go after the credits. Um... <laughs> And so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to have a bit of more booze. Cheers, everybody. Betty Butter bought some butter, but said she, this butter's bitter. If I put it in my batter, it will make my batter bitter, but a bitter better butter will make my batter better. Then she thought a bitter butter better than the bitter butter, made her bitter batter better, so it was better Betty Butter bought a bitter better butter. No! <laughs> <laughs> Years of actor training. Years. <laughs> 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 ah, lovely. <laughs>